This is The One Thing Podcast, and I'm your host, Dr. Adam Rindy. The One Thing Podcast brings together leaders in functional and naturopathic medicine to discuss actionable information that may unlock puzzles in the areas of gut health, brain health, metabolism, and longevity. Please note, these episodes do not replace the opinion of your doctor. They are not intended to diagnose or treat any condition. Please discuss this information with your provider and discuss your own unique personal health history before adapting this information. Please subscribe to our episodes so that you can stay on top of the most current information in these areas of medicine. Hey everybody, welcome back to this week's episode where I welcome onto the show Dr. Lucy Melling, who has been with us before when we spoke about the gut-skin access. Dr. Melling has a PhD from University of Illinois in Champaign. She has a PhD in nutritional science. She is a functional medicine practitioner and consultant. You can find out about her at lucymailing.com. In this week's episode, we dive deeply into all things intestinal lining, intestinal immune system, gut barrier, the world of leaky gut, and all things that are factors in that scenario. It is so important to understand what's going on in the mucosa. It's a region that's linked to many chronic illnesses, not only intestinal digestive disorders, but also larger immune disorders. So without further ado, I welcome you into the next week's episode of the One Thing Podcast. Cass, it's so great to have you back on with us today. Thanks, Adam. I'm, I'm really excited to be back. Yeah, so last time we really dove into the gut-skin access. It was a great discussion, learning how skin disorders are connected to the gut and how the how skin disorders um, can also influence gut health. So um, that was a really fascinating topic, one of our most well-listened to episodes. Um, and so I'd love to start off by just hearing what you've been up to lately. Um, last time we were speaking, you were in Australia and doing some things over there. And now it sounds like you're back uh, in the United States. So I'd love to hear what you've been up to. Yeah. So I'm, I'm back in Milwaukee temporarily, though, looking to move uh, to West Michigan. Um, I'm originally from Michigan. So we're excited about that. And yeah, the last two years have really been actually kind of another wave of, of healing for me. I actually I mentioned to you before we started recording that I, I had a chance to re-listen to our, our third, first podcast yesterday, knowing that we were going to be speaking today. And a lot of the themes that we touched on in that podcast, like self-acceptance, mental health, and the emotional journey that can often accompany skin conditions. It's interesting because I now realize that at that time, I had really only begun to brush the surface of that um, and experience that myself. And so, actually, I think it was about a month before we'd recorded the last podcast, I had a pretty profound meditation experience. Mm. And I had several weeks of just the most intense, incredible feeling of bliss. But then that was very quickly followed by an almost two-year struggle now um, to really find and reconnect to my true self and basically had to face all the emotions that I didn't even know I'd repressed for many, many years. Mm. So it's been a journey to say the least. Wow. And I also, during that time and all that 
going through this emotional process um, that I can really only describe as kind of grieving parts of my past self and, and kind of, um, yeah, I, I did have a, a resurgence of my eczema, which was really hard because, you know, I, I often feel like, oh, I should, you know, I have all the knowledge. I should, you know, be able to have more control over what happens with my skin. But I also knew it was part of the, this healing process, this emotional process that I was going through and that it just meant I had further to go still and more to learn. And I'd say now that I'm, you know, on the other side of this, this period that I'm largely very grateful to have gone through it and have had the time to slow down and feel and process everything that I needed to and just kind of embrace that healing process and, um, and I'm, I'm grateful to have had the ability to kind of take a, take a step back from work a little bit and, and do that. And I can now definitely more fully appreciate how much the nervous system and mental health and unprocessed, unprocessed emotions really play a huge role in our overall health. So mm. I just wanted to share that as sort of a, a bookend from our previous yeah. podcast before we get deep into the science again, which I'm, I'm excited to do. With yeah. You. Thanks for sharing that. Um, I think a lot of people can relate you know, and, and I think that's, it's really interesting because, you know, there's the identifying that there is a strong emotional piece that one must go through. And then there's the actual going through it. Mm -hmm. And those are so different because like the going through it is, is, uh, you know, can be scary for a lot of people to even step in those waters. How did you, did you reach out for support from from someone or was it something that you just had tools that you had already established? Yeah, I would say I had some tools already established, like in the, in the form of a meditation practice, um, journaling. I was already doing both of those really regularly when I sort of had that initial experience that started this kind of cascade. Um, I did reach out to, um, I worked with a therapist for a little while. It wasn't a great fit for me. It was my first time trying therapy. Um, and I'd still highly recommend it to, uh, to people in general. Uh, but it wasn't, it wasn't the best fit. So I did end up kind of moving on from that for a while. Um, and was, I'm still hoping to, to find a new one, um, once, once we move. Um, but I also just explored a lot of the healing resources that are are out there in terms of um, a couple things inter uh, like internal family systems. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure if if you've heard of that, but it's yeah. it was a really helpful framework for me to understand um, a lot of these. You know, because I I felt like I was grieving these different parts of me, and uh, it it was very much a helpful framework in that regard. Mm-hmm. And I'd also say uh, Dr. Gabor Matei's work. Oh yeah, was was really influential for me as well. So a lot of it was kind of this like self self therapizing, um, healing process, and also just like really, really taking a huge step back from work because I realized that work for a very long time had been my way of burying my feelings. I just, I really, it, it was my addiction basically. I, um, you know, I I never touched drugs or alcohol or any anything like that, but it was. It was work that I would turn to mm-hmm. when I didn't want to deal with a painful feeling. Yeah. So really just forcing myself to say, okay, I'm, I'm actually going to just take a retreat from work and I'm not going to allow myself to work for, for a few months. And um, I, I did that for 
several several periods um, of different lengths, but that was also really helpful to just essentially not force myself, but encourage myself more to sit with my feelings as opposed to, um, yeah, use use these other ways that I had I had long used to cope, but that wasn't really helping me to to process them. It was yeah. just sort of shoving them down again. So I see. So that was big. Oh, that's that's really great. I'm actually looking at a book I have on internal family systems right over my shoulder here. But yeah, it's, these are all really good, especially, you know, for people to understand, you know, the, um, you know, the, the piece around self-acceptance and all the different parts that can come from childhood trauma, past trauma, PTSD, those types of things. Um, so it's, it's really great. You share this because it's a level of healing that, um, in my practice, you know, we work on a lot of the physical and, you know, the mm-hmm. physical, sometimes you get all the way through a health condition, you know, and get things stable just by focusing on physical, the physical function of the systems. But for most people, they reach a point where like they get so far and then it's time to focus on the emotional and the mental health. And it's like, then, you know, it takes a whole other level of healing. Um, and so it's it's really remarkable. I think most people um, can relate to what you're going through that are dealing with like a chronic health problem. Yeah, yeah. I think it's great that you mentioned that. And it's something that I've, having gone through this period myself, it's also something that I see more with in working with my clients as well. And I think for me, I did, I did experience full healing just by addressing the physical for, and I had, I had full remission of my skin condition for, for five years. Mm-hmm. But then with this, with this emotional process, even though I had all the physical still, still working for me, right. I was still, uh, you know, still largely eating the same diet, exercise, sleep, all those things. But this emotional process just, just needed to happen. And, yeah. um, and I think it's led to a deeper, a deeper healing that I'm hoping will, will last. That's great. That's wonderful. Yeah. Um, for the listeners, Gaber Mate is a um, medical doctor out of Vancouver um, who's a psychoneuroimmunologist. Um, that's his kind of focus is the, the mind-body connection. But from a deep level, I mean, he's worked with all kinds of backgrounds, abuse, trauma, addiction, um, and, uh, you know, He's, he just really has a, an amazing way of describing the human suffering and, and putting it into a way of like uh, where you can connect to it and also translating to how that um, plays out with physical illness. And uh, another good resource in this kind of realm, um, I think, is uh, Brene Brown is another good resource mm-hmm. just mm-hmm. on self-acceptance because that's such a big piece of healing. Definitely. Well, today we, you know, we thought we'd go further into this really interesting component that, you know, um, ties together a lot of what we've talked about so far, which is an area that I've learned a lot from you um, about, which is kind of the mucous membrane, the intestinal barrier, um, the immune system of the gut, that kind of, that kind of world, um, which to me, I feel like is the holy grail of so much of illness, 
um, not only digestive health, but like autoimmunity, um, uh, cancers, various other major illnesses, even heart disease is kind of linked to this, this region of the body. So that'd be fun just to kind of travel down into the, the barrier together and, and just kind of talk about what's going down there, what's going on and sort of understand it a little bit deeper. And I think like one of the best places to start with just kind of like the mucosa and sort of discuss, discuss like the importance of the mucosal barrier. Um, so we're just kind of like going into this further and for the listeners, you know, listening to the first episode will be a really good intro to this, but I've talked about on many of my podcasts, just the intestinal lining, leaky gut. And what we're talking about is the, the mucosa, the, the lining that um, divides the internal world of the gut from the immune system, basically. Yeah, great. And, and I think, you know, as you mentioned, it, it does have connections to, to many different diseases and is, is so, so important. It's the largest and most important interaction between our body and the outside world is, is really the, the mucosal surfaces and, um, and, and the gut lining in particular, which is where 70% of our body's immune system resides is in this mucosa. And I think one of the things we touched on in the previous podcast was how um, a healthy gut barrier and gut mucosa really does help to shape a healthy microbiome as well. Mm -hmm. So this is actually, you know, people coming to come to me wanting to work to improve the health of their gut microbiome and, and want to know how to how to shift the microbes. Right. And often what I'm what I'm really doing is redirecting us to how can we help support your your gut barrier and your gut mucosa? Because when that's healthy, it has all of the functions that essentially select for a healthy microbiome and, and help maintain that healthy microbiome. So, um, yeah, I'm really excited to, to get into this with you. Yeah. And so the barrier, I guess some of the key factors that it does that I think would influence the composition of the microbiome is, um, creating a gradient, right. Of oxygen. Um, that is a concept that was, quite eye-opening. So I'd love to go into that a little bit, like the, what the function of the mucosa lining does as far as um, oxygen gradient. Sure. So a healthy colon in particular is largely devoid of oxygen, at least in the gut lumen, which is the central most part of the colon where all the bacteria reside. And most of the, most of the bacteria that make up a healthy colonic microbiome are what's called anaerobes, meaning they can't survive well in the presence of oxygen. And so one of the main um, factors uh, that shapes the gut microbiome and, and maintains that uh, level of beneficial anaerobes in the colon is actually the gut barrier maintaining this low level of oxygen. And so Essentially, how it does this is that the um, we have oxygen that is infusing the epithelial cells of our gut. So we so just to back up the um, the physical barrier of the gut is maintained by these this dense layer of epithelial cells, one one cell layer thick, um, and they've got tight junctions on either side keeping them tight together, 
And these epithelial cells themselves, like any cells in the body, they do um, do use oxygen to essentially um, produce cellular energy. But uh, in doing so, they actually prevent any oxygen from getting into that lumen space in the colon. The problem is if that epithelium becomes unhealthy, it stops essentially using all the oxygen that's coming to it from the bloodstream. And a lot of that oxygen starts leaking into the gut lumen where the microbes are. And that essentially leads to dysbiosis because the anaerobes can no longer really thrive in that environment that now has some oxygen leaking into it. And some of the more opportunistic pathogens in the gut, um, bacteria, also fungi, can basically take advantage of that environment that has a little bit of oxygen and essentially expand their niche in the gut and they become more, more dominant in the ecosystem than they otherwise would be. So that anaerobiasis is what it's called um, that's maintained by the epithelium is really, really important for maintaining the proper composition of the gut microbiome. And one of the key things that helps, helps the epithelial cells to remain healthy and utilizing oxygen is a regular supply of energy in the form of, of butyrate. Um, mm-hmm. So we, I think we touched on butyrate a little bit in the last podcast. It's one of those short chain fatty acids that's produced from the fermentation of fiber, but also somewhat protein as well. And so when you have butyrate coming in, they're using um, fatty acid metabolism. Those epithelial cells are using up the, the oxygen to metabolize that butyrate. And that's what helps maintain that low oxygen leakage into the gut. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so we can, we can see this on various testing that we do is where there'll be like a rise of um, proteobacter and a fall of the anaerobic um, species and mm-hmm. you know it, it's it's quite fascinating that um, you know this is all s- sort of a lot of it's conducted by the health of this this mucosal barrier and so it does make a lot of sense to me that you know your your initial approaches aren't just to say like well let's just sort of start targeting these microbes and giving them all these antimicrobial treatments um, it's like back up it's more of an eco ecologic approach of saying like the environments favoring these, uh, these more, um, uh, pathobiont species. Um, let's, let's see if we can reclaim the environment, um, so that it's more balanced and it's not going to favor the pathobionts and it's going to help support the commensals. Exactly. And that's one reason why with antimicrobial treatment alone, we often see people do get better for a time while right. those proteobacteria are wiped out, but then the environment is still there favoring the regrowth of the proteobacteria. And so we just see, you just see a resurgence unless you really deal with the environment as well. Yeah. 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 So alongside with the, the mucosa, um, there's other players, right, that are so important to this uh, management of the the microbiome. So we got the you and I were talking about like the uh, the, the intestinal um, immune team. <laughs> so these are I always think of how they actually are really kind of lined up right at the surface of the the gut lining and ready for um, ready for detection 
in action. It's just such a fascinating coordinated um, system down there in the um, gut associated lymphatic tissue region. Could you just kind of take us through some of your kind of the stars of the immune system um, that uh, live in the gut lining that help navigate this world? Sure, sure. So essentially what we're talking about is all in the area called the lamina propria, which is right beneath the uh, that layer of epithelial cells. So kind of the submucosal space is where all these immune cells lie. And the epithelium itself kind of provides a, a natural barrier between the bacteria in the gut and the immune cells. But there is quite a bit of communication and these immune cells are constantly actually sampling the gut environment and trying to use that information to determine, um, you know, is, is everything okay? You know, are, do we need to inhibit any of these um, any of these microbes or toxins or has anything breached the barrier? So these are all things that that they help to do. Um, so mo- a lot of these cells actually just reside in the gut. Um, so they arise from the bone marrow and then once they're mature, they, they um, circulate through the bloodstream and often come to um, reside in, in tissues like the gut. Um, and, and essentially just to kind of maybe walk through what happens and in homeostasis. So when, when there's, um, when the gut barrier is intact and we've got a healthy environment um, a lot of these immune cells are found, they're found in the lamina propria underneath, and they're also found in these dome-like structures called Peyer's patches. Um, and Peyer's patches have a mixture of immune cells, especially lymphocytes, so B and T cells, um, and as well as macrophages and dendritic cells. And so basically, the macrophages and dendritic cells they, basic, they will sample bacteria and dietary antigens in the gut lumen in this area called the Peyer's patch. So there's specialized cells in the Peyer's patch that basically allow a little bit more communication between the gut lumen and the area below where the immune cells are. Um, so this is sort of like a specialized immune sampling area. And um, so these macrophages and dendritic cells, they'll, they'll get little samples from the gut lumen and then they will present their findings to T cells in, in the lymph nodes. Um, so in a, in a calmer gut state, when, when things are in homeostasis, th- this generally causes those T cells to differentiate into um, regulatory T cells, which help suppress inflammation. So those regulatory T cells, or Tregs, as they're sometimes called, will migrate beneath the epithelium to that lamina propria area um, to release anti-inflammatory cytokines, um, anti-inflammatory molecules, and that will overall kind of suppress or dampen immune responses and and promote overall tolerance to the gut microbiota, to um, potential food antigens that are are in the gut lumen. Um, So that's sort of the the general players in the overall state of of homeostasis. It's definitely a lot, lot more complex than that, but that's sort of um, the the simplest that I, I can I can kind of try and boil it down to. Yeah. And then um, when we have a, a breach of the barrier, if we have a, a kind of a breakdown of gut barrier function, so this could be um, from a number of reasons. It could be we have exposure to antibiotics or a virulent pathogen or some NSAIDs, um, stress, any of these things can cause a breakdown in the barrier. 
And that will then basically lead to an influx of bacteria, different bacterial cell wall components, and dietary proteins into the submucosa, so the region just below those epithelial cells again. And so, and this can also happen in the pyrus patch as well. Um, but anytime there's an invasion, the immune cells are going to kick into gear and they're going to um, secrete pro-inflammatory cytokines, recruit more immune cells to the scene. And again, those macrophages and dendritic cells are kind of the first ones who will chew up any invading dietary proteins or microbial components and they'll present their findings to the T cells, but this time there's this big inflammatory milieu going on. And so that kind of inflammatory microenvironment will cause them to differentiate into effector T cells um, or helper T cells, which will then help to essentially launch a response against the evasion. Um, and also they'll save some memory T cells, so they'll prime the immune system for, for future insults as well. Yeah. So it seems like a really smart system. Um, however, the you know when we see this go awry, there's kind of the way I think about it. And I'd love to hear your thoughts. Is that there's just so much of a rush of these antigens that the immune system um, can engage in friendly fire, where it will code its T cells and um, against our own microbiome, um, the, some commensal species that were just kind of happened to be there or even food antigens that happened to be there and, um, or tissue, tissue proteins that have, you know, that are in the space. Mm -hmm. And then we, you know, we, we're dealing with the maladies and the diseases of, of the GI tract, the Crohn's, the IBD, um, and, uh, even other autoimmune conditions can start, can start in food allergies. Right. Mm -hmm. So I was wondering if you could comment on that, like how you view that, that shift from this really nicely designed system to all of a sudden we're attack, uh, the immune system's attacking self. Right. So that's definitely, uh, a good description of, of what happens. Basically, when these substances get into the submucosa, the immune system starts forming a response against it, regardless of whether it's a commensal microbe or a dietary antigen, that when it's in the lumen, it would be a normal you know, normal response of tolerance. But as soon as it crosses into the submucosa, it is something that the immune system says, well, this shouldn't be in, you know, in our, in the body space. Um, and so it is something that elicits an immune response and again, can form that kind of memory response against um, those dietary antigens. Uh, so certainly that it, that is thought to be um, what predisposes to um two allergies is when you when you have exposure of the immune system to these antigens in a very inflammatory environment it really does lead to an opportunity for um for this to happen and like you said unfortunately many of those these antibodies that are formed to react with these larger dietary proteins can also react with our own body tissues and this is that's thought to be the basis for autoimmunity. And that's why intestinal permeability in general is so closely associated with food allergy and, and food hypersensitivities. Mm -hmm. um, and it may even be a prerequisite for, for developing autoimmune disease as a breach in the barrier. Right. 
And I think, you know, part of the knock on the world of food sensitivities and food allergies is we just don't have great tests. And so it's not that they don't exist. It's just that I think healthcare providers in general just kind of throw up their hands at the tests and just say, you know, the test is useless, go on an elimination diet or maybe try to take out a few items. But, you know, as, as things develop, um, you know, I've even heard of, you know, research now where they're actually doing samples in the tissue, right? Mm-hmm. I think you, you, you wrote on that as well in one of your blogs um, where the, they're actually testing in the mucosa for food antigens. Um, not that that's practical in a clinical setting, but, you know, we, we, we just need to kind of recognize when people do say that they're reacting to certain foods or that certain foods are causing pain or GI symptoms to not completely brush it off because we don't have a test for it. Exactly. And I would say that some of the trouble with, with food sensitivities is, like you said, we haven't had great tests for it. And most of those tests have been, you know, looking in the serum. And if you don't have an IgE against a food, then your doctor is telling you, well, you, you know, you don't have an allergy against this. So, so you don't have a food sensitivity. But what we're now learning is that um, you can have localized gut immune activation and localized gut immune memory without ever activating the systemic immune system and getting antibodies that would ever show in the blood. So there was this really interesting um, study that was published last year in in Nature, um, in the journal Nature, where they looked at um, individuals with, with IBS and they injected solutions of soy, wheat, gluten, or milk into the colonic mucosa of 12 individuals with IBS and they had eight healthy controls. And all 12 of the IBS group had mucosal reactions to at least one of the foods tested um, compared to only two of the the healthy controls. And um, there were no differences in the total numbers of mast cells, but a lot of the patients with IBS had more IgE positive mast cells in close proximity to gut nerve fibers. Um, Mm -hmm. So there, there is this local... Um, mast cell activation going on in the colonic mucosa. So this local immune activation, even when we're not seeing that in the in systemic circulation. And so it's it does make it really difficult to to know what food sensitivities you have, you know, outside of an elimination diet, which I know we touched on quite a bit in the last um, the last yeah podcast. yeah. And I'm really glad you're bringing up IBS in this conversation too, because I think. You know, the um, IBD, the Crohn's and colitis and cholangitis colitis and some of the other microcytic um, colitis um, conditions get a lot of attention because you can actually see pathology on mm-hmm. on colonoscopies and, and uh, whereas IBS, maybe not. And people don't think that it's inflammatory. But it really is when you get into the research and the people who are studying and doing microscopic looks at the IBS environment that there there is the immune system's quite involved. <laughs> yes, yes, and the gut barrier is definitely dysfunctional in, right. in IBS as well. Yeah, so I think we we really need to kind of stop saying like it's oh it's just purely functional. 
it's more than just functional. It's it's functional and these other kind of immune system issues and barrier issues. So when we're talking about IBS, um, so I'd love to go further into disruptors of this environment as um, you talked a little bit about them, but there there's, you know, I read, I read research a lot on, you know, what is harming the intestinal barrier. And I just love to hear kind of things that you've learned recently that you think about, like I, I've been taking glyphosate quite seriously um, just because I've been coming across a lot of le- research on its impact on um, zonulin and, and uh, a couple other things that I just have put in my kind of look, my survey of things that might be disrupting the intestinal barrier. I just was wondering, like, what are, what are some things you're thinking about these days? Yeah, I mean, definitely some of the biggest things I think about are processed foods, um, refined carbohydrates, refined sugars, food additives, um, emulsifiers. A lot of these things in the diet can can really be be strong triggers, and and often you know in in an individual who's consuming those, there it's like a, a regular insult to mm-hmm. to the gut as well, because um, they're potentially consuming those frequently. So so processed foods is is definitely a, a huge one. Um, you know there are, there are definitely some isolated components of foods that have been identified to to affect um, the gut barrier as well. So I know gluten gets a lot of attention, for example, for um, its ability to potentially trigger gut barrier breakdown. Um, and we can we can certainly go into that more. It's definitely more complicated than just gluten is going to cause permeability in everyone, though. Um, there's actually some really interesting research by Elaine Hissau's, uh lab that small intestinal dysbiosis can actually increase the immunogenicity of gliadin and some of the other peptides Mm. in wheat. Whereas if you have a healthy small intestinal microbiome, it will actually degrade and decrease the basically how, how intensive an immune response um, that's going to produce. So there's definitely this interaction between the microbiome and some of these components that it's, it's not straightforward. And a lot of times, um, it's we have to be very careful when we're looking at the research because a lot of the permeability research is done in isolated epithelial cells. Mm-hmm. So they'll they'll take um, often KCO2 cells or what they're called, um, and they'll create like this little small intestinal barrier in culture, and then they'll expose it to a, a decent concentration of whatever they're they're trying to look at. And um, the problem is that that's very different than what would happen in a free living human consuming small amounts of that particular compound in the diet. Um, and so I kind of already illustrated that with, with gluten, you can, you know, the small intestinal microbiome has a modifying effect there. Um, we also see this with, uh, capsaicin, which is a Mm -hmm. common compound found in spicy nightshade vegetables. It will dramatically increase permeability in cell culture studies, but in dietary feeding studies, mice that are supplemented with capsaicin have actually been shown to have reduced levels of gut permeability and mm-hmm. lower endotoxemia, so lower levels of gut endotoxin translocating into the blood, mm-hmm. in part because capsaicin seems to beneficially modulate the microbiome. It increases mm-hmm. the butyrate producers and it reduces mm. a lot of the endotoxin um, producing bacteria. So it's all, it, we have to be careful not to take this very complex system and boil it down to these cell culture studies where we right. see 
you know, how these individual things affect, um, affect gut barrier function. And um, as another example of this, intense exercise has been shown to transiently cause gut permeability, right? And even small intestinal damage. But if you look at elite endurance athletes who are obviously doing that all the time, they have lower amounts of LPS in the blood. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe there's some even some adaptation effect that happens that if you, you know, if you kind of challenge the barrier in small amounts, it may actually um, become more more resilient, or at least that's what we think might be happening mm. with, with exercise. Okay. Yeah. That's interesting. And I've seen a lot of the research on intestinal per- permeability to come out of like boot camp subjects, you know, that, mm-hmm. and you think about that, like that is the kind of a, a microcosm of the mi- macrocosm of modern living. If you feel like your life is like a boot camp, you know, where you're just pushing it 24 seven, not getting much rest physically and mentally stressed. Um, you know, I've always found that research kind of re- somewhat real world applicable. Mm. Mm, that's a really interesting point. Um, you know, they've, and, uh, you know, where intestinal permeability, um, will kick in during boot camp uh, environments uh, with military subjects. So it's, it's interesting. Uh, I really like how you point that out, how we have to really think about what's being studied. You know, is it a cell? Is it a system? Is it a rodent? Is it a human? You know, how long all these things are really important before we make these conclusions. Um, yeah. But that, and that's I really, think go ahead. I was also just going to say, and, and also the context too. Um, so for example, with saturated fat, uh, there's, there's a lot of attention on saturated fat causing gut permeability, but, um, most of the data there is on mouse studies where they give high amounts of saturated fat in the context of a Western diet, high in sugar, um, or isolated cells where they flood the cell with, with saturated fat, which, you know, does tend to cause some inflammatory changes. Um, but even if you have a little bit of DHA, so an omega-3s in the diet mm-hmm. or olive oil, um, oleic acid, both of those have been shown to mitigate a lot of the inflammatory effects that you see with lots, you know, massive amounts of pure saturated fat. And then it also, in that case, kind of depends on whether ketones kick in too. Um, so there are certainly cases where a kind of paleolithic style ketogenic diet has successfully treated Crohn's disease, which is definitely characterized by, um, you know, issues with intestinal permeability. Um, and I've seen this in patients with, with human colitis as well, um, that it seems like a ketogenic diet, even though it's high in saturated fat can, can have, um, benefits for the mucosal barrier. So lots of, lots of nuances for sure. Yeah. I mean, I always like when, when researchers are responsible, when they're talking about the, the harm of a high fat diet, when they put a picture in the study of a Big Mac and a fry, <laughs> that's more what we're talking about. That's right. Versus like, you know, someone who's having an avocado with some salmon. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a different story, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, that could be considered a high fat diet too. But it's like you said, it's blended with a lot of anti-inflammatory fats and it doesn't have the, the processed carbohydrate component and the, you know, kind of the inflammatory component. So... Yeah, it's uh, it's it's really 
really interesting. Um, you know, I'd love to get your take on this because, you know, during the pandemic, like everybody's favorite hobby has been like becoming like a home specialist in what's your favorite cocktail. <laughs> it's like the thing over the last a couple years here is like I, I just hear about all the different drinks people are making and having and trying and you know it's become like a habit and I have you know I've seen a lot of research on you know the the impact of alcohol on the intestinal lining and I just would love to hear your take on that yeah so I think the research on alcohol is definitely much more robust when it comes to it disrupting the the intestinal barrier because we actually have you know a little bit closer to controlled feeding studies with alcohol um so certainly alcohol beyond moderation definitely does have a negative impact on the barrier and but again it, it is a little bit dependent on the person so you know if if your gut barrier is already really suffering then alcohol is probably going to have a more significant effect for you then, you know, if you have a really healthy gut, a robust microbiome, having, you know, a drink every now and then is is not likely to cause sufficient damage to really um, be anything to worry about too much. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that's kind of what I share a lot with my patients is that, um, you know, how prepared is your is your gut for this, you know? If you, you know, if you just came off two weeks of an antibiotic and you were already hurting prior to that, like, yes, it could be not the best time to drink or to drink a lot, um, or you need to have some gut preparation before you start drinking again. But it's, yeah, I think it's, uh, it's an interesting thing that I've seen a, a big uptick in, in my practice, um, during these times. So yeah, something I- to kind of keep an eye on. Yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, again, kind of context can play a role there too. Are are you having it in a, in a positive social environment with your friends where you're getting a lot of beneficial social interaction as well? Or are you, you know, at the end of the day, stress drinking to, to be able to cope with things that, you know, perhaps would be ideal to cope with it in other ways if you can. Very good point. Yeah. Yeah. I always think about like, you know, the European style dinner, you know, where it's like mm-hmm. an hour and a half, two hours long, you're, you're around people that you get along with or enjoy spending time with. There's talking, singing, laughing, you're having a few drinks and a nice meal, probably a pretty good setting to, to do okay. <laughs> um, right. But yeah, uh, that's really great that you pointed that out. Um, on the flip side, you know, I guess we could talk about protectors of the intestinal barrier you talked about butyrate as being one um and you know obviously like the stress management and avoidance of some of these triggers is there anything that you are thinking about these days about like putting into your lifestyle putting into your diet or putting into your um into your gut that's like a protector of the the um barrier yeah so I can certainly talk about that. Maybe I'll talk about ones that are a little bit more kind of already in your gut, and then we can talk about things that you might be able to kind of add into. So definitely you mentioned butyrate. We already talked about that and other short chain fatty acids to a lesser extent too. Um, I've been getting really interested in tryptophan metabolites lately. Mm. Um, Tryptophan is an amino acid um, in in protein and um, 
And it basically gets broken down or metabolized by different gut bacteria into indoles and related compounds, many of which have important signaling effects on the barrier, uh, which promote gut barrier function and good gut immune health as well. So a lot of those are derived from um, from lactobacillus and, and other bacteria. So um, I've been getting interested in that. And and bile acids as well can, can have... Um, can be a protector of the barrier. So we have these kind of more endogenous um, things, things that are already in the gut um, that are being produced that help to help to regulate um, the gut barrier. And then there's certainly also things that we can do in terms of um, diet and lifestyle. We talked about elimination diets a lot on the last podcast, so um, won't go into those too much, but certainly um, if you have kind of these inflammatory reactions against certain um, food antigens, then removing those for a time can really help the um, gut barrier to to repair because you're kind of preventing it from having that constant local immune activation in the gut. Um, and then incorporating things like intermittent fasting can be really helpful for mm. the barrier just to give it a rest and, and some time to, to repair. Mm. Um, Beyond that, uh, there's definitely certain probiotics that have been shown to help with barrier function. So probably one of the most well-studied is called VSL-3, or was Mm -hmm. previously called VSL-3, is now um, commercially available as Visbiome Mm -hmm. um, as a probiotic. And uh, it's a blend of lactobacillus and bifidobacterium. Um, Really well-studied, generally really well-tolerated. Um, and has been shown to improve barrier function, even in states of inflammatory bowel disease, where there's pretty yeah. significant inflammation going on and significant barrier disruption. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a really positive one there. And then one that I've um, come across in, in recent years that has uh, really positive effects, again, um, even in states as extreme as IBD, is uh, serum bovine immunoglobulins. Right. Which, if folks have heard of colostrum, it's a, it's similar to colostrum in that it's got this dense amount of immunoglobulins, but instead of being derived from the, the dairy um, or from the milk of the cow, it's derived from the serum, which means it doesn't have any of the milk proteins either. So for folks who are um, intolerant of, of dairy proteins, um, it's a great option that's a little bit more hypoallergenic. And basically what this does it, is it actually binds to some of the more pro-inflammatory parts of proteobacteria. Um, so it, it binds to LPS and, and some of these these other endotoxins. And it's been shown to increase gut barrier function through sort of supporting the, the gut immune system. Um, so that's kind of another practical thing that um, that I've had a lot of clients have, have good success with. Um, yeah. 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 And I think, you know, to add to that, I mean, I'm also focusing on the importance of mast cell stabilization um, within this environment of a of, of a permeable gut, permeable gut. So, you know, looking at all the different um, ways that we can nutritionally support um, stabilizing histamine and leukotriene release and all those mediators. That's a so, great point. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of supplements out there and dietary strategies that you can add on to, you know, like the um, the food reactions and food sensitivities, you can even find that tune that a little bit further if you have to with um, looking at things that can implement uh, mast cells. I know you talk about that too in your, in your research and read writing and stuff. So 
Yeah. Yeah. I'm really glad you mentioned that though. Cause that, that does seem to be really big. Um, I would say, especially in IBS also, also IBD as well. Right. Um, I, you know, I think I'm kind of, uh, just to kind of back up just a little bit, cause I, I want to just get your thoughts on, on something related to this is if, um, you talk a lot about gases, um, that are produced in the gut. So like, I know that you have a lot of deep knowledge about hydrogen sulfide and then methane and hydrogen. Are these things that you're thinking about as far as knowing what dominant gases are being produced in the gut as far as a disruptor in the intestinal membrane, uh, intestinal lining? Yes. So particularly hydrogen sulfide is known to disrupt the mucus layer and cause, um, cause intestinal permeability. I haven't seen the same uh, literature in regards to methane. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if you've seen anything there, but I, um, it's primarily hydrogen sulfide that we think of as like really disrupting the mucus layer and, and the barrier. Methane yeah. could certainly have kind of um, I- indirect effects on, on barrier function because it does tend to slow motility and um, can certainly and can potentially affect kind of the secretory environment of mm-hmm. the gut as well. And so um, that may have indirect effects on, on the mucosa as well. And we often see things that kind of go along with, with methane overproduction um, mm-hmm. that seem to indicate that there might be some of this more histamine mast cell activation going on in, in those individuals too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I've seen with um, a few studies I've read on hydrogen um, positive SIBO where the jejuni flatten, um, mm. I'm sorry, the, the, just to be clear in the jejuni, the, um, the enterocytes, the, the, um, villi will flatten, um, hinting at, you know, sort of a barrier breach. Um, and, okay. uh, I, I've seen that and seen where they actually have biopsies to show that and, and human cultures. So I do, I mean, I think I, I think about it, especially if it's a really robust problem, you know, where, um, you know, we, we have a significant, um, intestinal bacterial overgrowth or methane overgrowth or, you know, so, um, yeah, it's just great to hear your thoughts on that. Cause I think the hydrogen sulfide is, is, um, now we have a better way of understanding, through stool tests and breath testing, like what species are causing it and how, how, how to approach it. Um, yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's, that's really interesting. And, um, with this whole world of, I mean, I think we've alluded to it, but is, it seems like, you know, when you, you're stepping into these waters of intestinal permeability issues, you know, you really just have to start somewhere because it's like with all the things that we've listed, it's like, it can be overwhelming to someone to figure out, okay, what's first, what's second, what's third. And it does help to work with a practitioner to kind of prioritize and see like, what's most likely the imbalance that you have that would be top priority. But it's almost like, it's almost like a room that hasn't been organized and put you know, things haven't been put away for a really long time, like, like a teenager's room or something, um, you know, where it's like, okay, where do we start? What are your thoughts on that? 
Yeah. So I would say typically I'm, and I think we touched on this in the last podcast too, is I I always emphasize starting with the health behaviors first, because that's really going to be the the thing that, that really moves the needle is, you know, you can, you can take all these, you can take probiotics and you can take SBIs and things like that. But if you're still putting processed foods into your gut, you're, you're just going to be shooting yourself in the foot. Right. So, so after kind of really working on, um, getting the diet dialed in and, and these things, um, these, these healthy behaviors, then I would probably be looking at a stool test to kind of essentially is like a triage to see if there's a particular area that we should be focusing on. So, and, and in that case, I'm, I also want to make sure that we're screening for any kind of big red flags that might be causing significant inflammation and permeability. So is there a mm-hmm. parasite present that is likely causing significant inflammation? Because mm-hmm. that would be something that we'd want to address up front. Um, or is there hydrogen sulfide overgrowth? And that would be something that we'd be aware of. And then we might want to actually tweak the kind of their basic nutrient-dense diet to be a little bit more conducive to um, to reducing the hydrogen sulfide production. Mm-hmm. So um, so I kind of use a stool test as a um, a roadmap to to figure out if there's if there's a particular direction we should go with with supporting the barrier. Yeah. Um, if you know if if significant things aren't coming up on that, um, then I would really be you know doubling down on those those healthy behaviors, but also considering things like evidence based probiotics, um, things like um, like the SBIs and kind of layering in some of these other things mm-hmm. and seeing if we can we can provide some extra nutrient support to the barrier, um, potentially with some supplemental butyrate, um, sometimes some glutamine as well, since that's kind of the, um, the equivalent of butyrate in the small intestine. It's mm-hmm. what fuels the small intestinal epithelial cells. So we might consider things like that to see if we can provide some nutritional support. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would say usually, usually there are things in the stool test that can kind of guide us um, one way or the other as to what what might be the particular causes. You know, do they have? Does it seem like they have low immune function? You know, their their secretory IgA is kind of depressed, and right. um, they don't really seem to have a lot of immune support. In which case, we might really just focus on boosting the immune system. Um, do they have other markers? elsewhere, either from blood work or other tests that indicate that um, they're not detoxifying well. We might focus on that for a while because that can impact the barrier. So um, it really, I mean, it, it is kind of a, a broader integrative or functional approach in general mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Is, is also kind of the approach that I, I take to the mucus layer. But I would also say that um, in, in treating anyone in functional medicine, I would also always want to address the the gut mucus layer at some point early on in the process. Yeah. As yeah. well. Makes sense. Well, before we um, leave this conversation and kind of talk about and hearing about what you're up to and how people can work with you and, and follow your work. Um, I'd love just to kind of bring this full circle and kind of where we started um, talking about, you know, the emotional health and stress health. I'd love to hear your thoughts about the state of mind when people are eating and sitting down mm-hmm. with their food and anything that you've learned along your journey about just that, those moments where you're just sitting with your food and 
in eating and how, how to kind of, how to be in those, in that setting? Yeah. What a great question. And I certainly don't want to pretend to be an expert on this because I, <laughs> I, uh, I definitely struggle with this sometimes. Um, especially, you know, when, when you're eating, you know, amidst work or, um, you know, at the end of the day, maybe my husband's not done with work, so we're eating separately. And then, um, you know, it, it can be, I do have, um, kind of a past history with, with emotional eating as well. So it's, it's not always easy for me to, to really try and de-stress, but, um, some of the things that have worked for me at least are, if I find myself rushing to dinner to eat or to to any meal, I try to just slow down and even go take a walk first. You know, just really try not to go, especially since since I can get very wrapped up in, in my work. And um, I, I really try to kind of have some separation there before I go straight to <laughs> putting things in, in my mouth. Um, so really trying to either take a walk or do some other form of exercise first that kind of settles my nervous system, um, or doing some meditation, um, before I, I eat, or even just a simple, like 30 second gratitude practice before, um, before Mm -hmm. eating can really help to center me. Um, and then also another thing that I've done and also, um, done with, with my clients or, or recommended that they do is really try to chew your first 10 bites 30 times each. And then Mm -hmm. after that, you'll probably be in a state where you'll be, you know, eating slower and, and a little bit more mindfully. Mm -hmm. Um, But that can, that can sometimes help too. But I'm curious if you have any, have any other. No, those are all great. I think the only one I would add that I've picked up over the years is um, especially with like little ones around, like when, you know, you're just, there's so much going on around dinner time when it's like, I don't want this. I don't want that. Give me this. Mm-hmm. You know, there's just like, you're kind of in a, it's, it can become stre- more, even, even more stressful, um, is taking, uh, digestive bitters and just mm-hmm. squirting them in your mouth and holding them for like 30 seconds. It gets your brain and gut to talk <laughs> <laughs> before you sit down and eat, which is really like an important thing. Right. And so you're, 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 uh, cranial nerves get involved that, you know, are, are involved with digestion when you have the bitter taste in your mouth. So, uh, there's all kinds of cool little bitter flavors now that they have like at the health food stores or even online where you can kind of pick one that you like. It's not like the, the bitters that people drink mixed with the drinks. It's usually like slightly flavored. Like I have one that's like, um, citrus and bitter and it's just like really like wakes me up, gets me in the mood to, to kind of focus on that. I'm actually going to be eating and not just shoveling my food. <laughs> yeah. That's really interesting. I, I really, uh, I'm very fond of a bear guest. I actually, oh, you know, a yeah. lot of people use it for motility, but I actually think it, it tastes quite It's good. yummy. Yeah. 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 <laughs> that's a perfect example. If you just do like a little swish around your mouth of a barrel gas before you eat, um, you know, it can kind of just get you to slow down for a second to realize, okay, you know, this is, this is a function that I really need to be present with. But, um, yeah, I think these little things are, these all add up, you know, and I do, I do think it, it does help with kind of the emotional, uh, piece of digestive health. Um, Absolutely. the other one I would say that's, um, really cool now is the, 
there's a new app out called Nerva. I don't know yeah, if I've tried yeah. that. Yeah, so it's That's like an great. app for self-directed hypnotherapy, and it also just kind of brings you into like a, an awareness state when you're eating or with your digestive system. So that one's, um, you can find it like on um, app stores, Nerva. I would so, yeah, cool. Um, well, this has been so fun. I, I just love talking about this stuff, and uh, it's it's uh, just so interesting to me. I can never learn enough. Um, and I'd love to kind of hear more about your, you know, kind of your consulting, what you're doing, how, how you're helping people and just other things. And I will say before I turn this over to you is, cause I don't know if you'll mention this, but everybody out there, if you're really interested in what Dr. Mailing is talking about, I would sign up for her Patreon page, um, which I'm a member of where you get like insider information that Dr. Mailing's uh, studying and writing about. And, uh, you know, you kind of get uh, like a insider email and newsletter and it's just really top notch. And um, I really want to just put a plug in for that. Well, thank you. I really, really appreciate that. Um, it's definitely a labor of love. I, I uh, really enjoy doing those, those posts for, for patrons. So, I uh, would definitely encourage anyone who wants to join the community there. And you get a little bit more direct access to me, too. To, um, I'm hoping to bring in a, a Q&A, a regular kind of Q&A session, too, oh, pretty cool. soon. So um, so that'll be added hopefully in the next month or so. Um, but, yeah, I, honestly, most of my time is spent uh, doing independent research, reading the scientific literature and writing. Um, but I do quite a few consults as well. Uh, and I do have some openings for new clients. So I mostly work with uh, people who have digestive issues, various gut problems. Um, occasionally, folks who have, you know, skin conditions or things that they suspect are tied back to the gut and um, work with those folks as well. Um, I essentially just do do one-off appointments so um, so that folks can decide how long they, they want to work with me. My goal is to get you better so that you don't have to come back to me. So I like that. Um, yeah. I enjoy working with, you know, a, a lot of people and, and a diversity of people. So, um, so yeah, I have, I have um, everything at lucymailing.com, my blog, a um, couple courses, hoping to expand on that in the coming months as well. Um, the Patreon you can find there too, and, and information about working with me. Excellent. Um, and any parting thoughts that you want to share with us before we wrap up for today? No, I, I don't think so. I'm just really grateful for you having me on and always appreciate the opportunity to really geek out on stuff with you, yeah. Adam. So yeah, definitely. Yeah. Thank you. And, um, we'll just continue to keep in touch and, and, um, yeah, I think you're doing amazing things and I really like how you're bringing your personal healing process into your work. I'm sure that your clients really appreciate that too. Thanks. I, I appreciate you saying that. And, uh, yeah, certainly appreciate all that you do and, um, amazing that you've been in, in practice for so long now and have so much, uh, clinical wisdom. So, yeah, it's just, I mean, the, just, you can't ever stop learning. So it's, especially now that we're, you know, we're on the frontier of di the, the gut mm -hmm. health and the microbiome study. It's just, it's like the golden era. 
So yeah, so much to learn, especially the mucosa and the and mucosa. Yeah. I feel like as soon as I understand it, there's all this new research that I know. comes out and adds on all these layers. So yeah, it, it's it's yeah. really great. Well, um, thanks again for being here and spending and being so generous with your time. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Okay. Thank you so much for tuning into this week's episode of the One Thing Podcast. Please share these episodes with your friends, loved ones, colleagues, patients, healthcare providers, anyone who you feel might benefit from hearing these informative interviews. We tend to learn best from people sharing things with us. That's often the first time it's introduced. So don't hesitate if these the content of these episodes reminded you of someone that might benefit from it. Forward the, the episode to them and I'm sure they'll either appreciate it or be appreciative that you've thought of them. So once again, we'll look forward to seeing you next episode on the One Thing Podcast. And again, much appreciation for you being here with me.